Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fucknicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I am uh, doing it. I'm in it. I'm here. I'm present and accounted for. The world is kind of pressing. Pressing on all of us, right? Like a fucking knee to the back of the neck. I mean, it's hard enough, right? It's hard enough dealing with what we're all dealing with pandemic-wise. And now this horrendous act of murderous violence, which demands a response and a protest and a reaction and justice. It's hard for me to fucking wrap my brain around all of it because I am consumed with my personal grief so i have to stay in the present man i have to stay so in the present because if i get any even 10 minutes ahead of where i'm at right now you know the darkness can envelop me so i've been doing what i can and i'm not trying to diminish anything that's going on in the world can't can you it seems correct to me there can be power there this reaction in the streets was coming a long time and that is the power of people up against what keeps looking more and more like a fascistic government evolving but like i said it's very hard for me to sort of see past my selfish pain And even even as somebody who doesn't believe in God, I uh, I have been known to hit my knees occasionally. Something I learned early on in my sobriety. Doesn't matter if you believe or not. Humble yourself before the universe. Surrender. Engage your humanity. Ask for help. Ask for guidance. Ask for strength. Keep walking forward. Keep breathing. Not beyond me to do that. I've done it. But God damn, it feels like things are breaking down. And that's why I have to be careful in some degree for myself in this state of grief. My perception is not clear. There's part of me that wants to just kind of veer off into the hopelessness veer off into the nihilism, veer off into the depression, the darkness, the self-pity. But instead, I think about Lynn, I think about people fighting back, I think about love, and I think about um, cake. Cake has been helpful. Somebody sent me some boxes from Katz's Deli in New York with some babka in there chicken soup matzo ball soup and babka has been very helpful someone sent me biscottis great homemade jam i'll take it trying to stay out of the darkness stay in the strength stay in the cake my heart goes out to people in the fight it does i'm sorry i'm not out there 
I'm fighting for my own mind right now. On the show today, I talked to Jeffrey Wright. This is obviously a talk that happened before the shit went down with George Floyd and the protest, but Jeffrey's been very active on Twitter. He's a fighter. We talk a lot about his uh, relief organization, Brooklyn for Life, which was established to provide food for frontline workers during the pandemic. You can check that out at brooklynforlife.org. He's on Twitter now, fighting the good fight. You might know Jeffrey from uh, Westworld or the James Bond movies or on Broadway. He's currently in the movie All Day and a Night, which is now uh, streaming on Netflix. I'm a huge fan of his. He's always good. He's always good. And Lynn actually made me watch, because I'd never heard of it, this uh, Ride with the Devil movie. It's an Ang Lee movie, a Civil War movie. And uh, it's a complicated movie. And she loved it. And she, we watched it before I talked to Jeffrey. And I thought it was great. It's a tricky movie because it's really about the rebels, the bushwhackers, I think they were called. It's sort of a pro-Confederacy bunch. And Jeffrey plays a, a, a black man among a Confederate sympathizing group of guerrillas, really. Fighters, guerrilla fighters, basically. But uh, Lynn loved the movie. It's an Ang Lee movie, and she made me watch it. And uh, I thought it was great, and I thought he was great. So it was interesting to see that, because and I talked to him a little bit about it. So this is me talking to, uh, to Jeffrey Wright. This is the way we do it. My, my fear is that, uh, is that people will get too comfortable with this. I think that's valid. Yeah. And and not want to do anything in person again. Right, right. You know, as, like a, as, as a friend of mine said, man, I've been practicing social distance for, for, for decades now. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is cool with me, you know. Yeah, yeah, bro. There is something uh, comfortable about it. I mean, I, I, you know, I started my career as a comic just wandering around doing nothing. And uh, I like doing nothing, to be honest with you. I always thought that I was working towards doing nothing. So this is sort of a dry run. Of doing nothing. Yeah, that uh, was the original plan for me, too. And it was cool. <laughs> it was cool for about a week and a half. And, uh, right. I, you know, the I think it was a couple of things. Well, primarily the constant, like, grinding drone of those daily press uh, press briefings out of the well, white those house are terrible yeah yeah you know that just drove me i, I realized i had to do something else uh for the sake of well my yeah health. no and i think that doing something you know active i i mean i just meant in a sense that if there weren't a plague i would be uh i would be fine like it, right. like it, there's something very comforting about the fact uh, outside of the plague that i'm not doing anything and i know for a fact no one else was fucking doing anything either. So the race is over. We can all relax. Day 100. But then there's the plague. Then there's the plague. And then, <laughs> and then there's also, you know, the economic pressures on, uh, on, on communities and others. But you're absolutely right, man. Terrible. It's, I mean, it is, if it, it is an opportunity to, you know, for reset, like on a personal level, but also on a collective level. You know, the way I look at it, I you hope know, so. this, this COVID, uh, is a, fucked up dinner guest but 
it makes some interesting points, you know, as we look around. And, yeah, for sure. And, and see the ways in which nature is shifting. You know, you've got, oh, this, this yeah. thing. You've got dolphins in the Bosphorus fate, uh, straits now, yeah. you know, instead of oil tankers. You know, it's like, you know, you see, you, you, you know, you were looking at the, at the lockdown in, in the Hubei province in China and all of a sudden the skies were clear, you know. And the, the CO2 emissions were, were it's like, OK. Yeah. I, I mean, I really hope that I, I wonder how many people collectively will take to that. I mean, you know, until it seems that until the, the, the bulk of the people everywhere realize that their leaders are trying to kill them, uh, that they you know won't be able to see this clearly. But but it really is sort of astounding and beautiful that nature how quickly uh, it, it kind of bounces back. In Yosemite, the bears are back, and you know, it's as soon as people leave, the animals are like, "Holy shit, this is fucking great!" Yeah, the 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 animals are like, um, "Oh, the virus is gone," <laughs> you know, their, yeah. <laughs> their their pandemic is, uh, you know, they've come through the other side. They're done with their social distancing yeah. now. You know, they're locked down, and they're like, "Okay, all right, back to normal." You know, I mean, exactly. Thank God, about time. It only took a you know a couple hundred thousand years, right? But we got rid of those motherfuckers, you know. But then the question though becomes, yeah. you know, w- 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 you know, it, will this be an opportunity for us to rethink on a, on a number of different different levels, you know, individually and collectively? Uh, when we come out of this or I hope so or will you know will the machine take over you know and and like drive us back to the same you know narrowly focused narrowly interested policies and measures that you know <laughs> in some ways got us here in the first in the in the first place you mean the uh, you mean the uh, death march well yeah yeah I suppose so I suppose so <laughs> you know well, what is your what I mean, how are you uh, engaging with, uh, you know, obviously I, I'm trying to do good things, uh, but uh, I don't uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard to know where to start. But, you know, you said you just got off a call with uh, with the uh, Congressman Jeffries. You know, how are you engaging with the apparatus there? Well, um, yeah, we just got off a really um, informative uh, and also at times pretty emotional call Um with about 200 small business owners here in Brooklyn um, that the, the congressman put together. Uh, we had a conversation a couple of days ago. I'll tell you why that was. But it was a, it was a, it was a productive call at, in which a lot of these small business owners were expressing their frustration uh, at not having access to the PPP funds and the various uh, you know, resources that, you know, are allegedly being made available to um, to uh, you know businesses of that scale, um, and, yeah. and they're you know they're folk you know one woman in particular in the call, call I think she had a guard a garden center uh, uh, here in, in Brooklyn and you know she's saying hey you know my my uh, my uh, internet just got cut off you know I, I I applied twice I got rejected you know phones about to get you know these people are in you know in dire straits and and reaching out. Uh, obviously, to the congressman for uh, for assistance, but the way it came about was that, you know, I it's pretty simply, really. I was trying to help a friend over here who's a restaurant owner. My friend Michael Thompson. He owns a spot called the Brooklyn Moon here in Fort Greene that has been in the neighborhood for twenty five years. Uh, you know, kind of a, yeah. a local institution, and we used to. 
When I first yeah. moved here, I first, well, I first moved here in 1989. Uh, then I moved back to Manhattan. When my son was born, I moved back here because, uh, it, you know, it was a little leafier, a little less stressful than Manhattan. So we, I've been here for about 20 years now. And yeah, we used to play, ch- we used to play chess at Mike's place. There used to be a group of us, you know, we play chess and drink whiskey, you know. And so we've been friends for, you know, since then. So he's not a delivery-oriented business. He's more of a social gathering uh, space. So uh, I, I said, Mike, you know, we're about to go on lockdown, bro, because I've been kind of tracking this thing, you know, for a while. And I said, you, you need to start thinking about how you're going to convert to delivery, you know, full delivery mode, and I'll help you, uh, you know, uh, boost uh, awareness of that via social media. So he did... You know, we went on lockdown. Next day, I was like, how'd you do today? You know, he's like, yeah, man, I, 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 I had five orders. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> that ain't going to do it, you know, unless you're selling like, you know, uh, meals at $10,000 a plate and it's costing you like 500. That ain't going to work, you know. So uh, someone notified me on Twitter that that ever so useful machine uh, that it is cesspool, yeah. uh, rotten but sometimes useful uh, thing. So someone notified me that another friend uh, who owns a restaurant called Graziella's here, a guy named Vito Rondazzo, was asking people to call in, customers to call in and order pizzas on behalf of Brooklyn Hospital over here, which I can see you know, out my window through the trees. And so I reached out to Vito and asked him what was up and, you know, asked him if he would connect me to the hospital because I had assumed, you know, that the hospital didn't need food because they had a, got a cafeteria. But he he connected me with a guy over there, senior vice president for external affairs, a guy named Lenny Singletary. He's just been amazing. And the three of us met the next day and he said, listen, we got people working 15, 16 hour days. Uh, many of them are not going home, staying in hotels nearby. Restaurants are closed. So if you if you can augment our cafeteria with 200 meals per day, it would be most welcome. So that's how it started. Really, it was like, OK, how do I help out my my dudes? You know, and, you know, so I'll boost it on social media. I'll put a GoFundMe page together. You know, maybe we can raise some money for these two restaurants to provide a couple of hundred meals yeah. to one hospital. OK, so then. We're like, well, we got some other friends in the neighborhood. You know, there's other food I like, you know, that, that, that fried chicken, that peaches. You know, I want to make sure that that's there when this thing is over. You know, that hot Nashville chicken, Brooklyn style. I yeah. want that. So let me reach out to them. You guys need any help? They reached out to other friends and it just, you know, kind of uh, blossomed from yeah. there. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams reached out, you know, when he caught wind of what we were doing, said, hey, this is great. Can we'll help you take it borough wide? Like, oh, okay, all right. So now you know we're up to uh, we're up to a circle of about uh, of over forty restaurants. We are providing twenty five hundred meals per day on average to um, wow all eleven FDNY EMS stations in Brooklyn. And as of yesterday, I think now 11 medical facilities here in Brooklyn, one actually uh, of those actually is in lower Manhattan. And, uh, you know, we passed the 75,000 meal mark just yesterday. And that's all since March 27th. It's so amazing that, you know, because food is so important. It's so connected. You know, it connects people. It makes you feel better. And, and people who prepare beautiful food of any kind, you know, put so much heart into it. And there's that human connection and just basic sustenance. It's a beautiful thing, really. 
Yeah, it's, you know, basic sustenance. You know, you, you can't make a good dish without a little love in it, you know, no matter how many you're making. That's you know? right. And uh, yeah. And, that, and so how is it all funded? It's all funded through donation. Yeah. So like, we set up the GoFundMe page, I think, March 25th. And, you know, so um, we've raised about two hundred and seventy five thousand on that, which has been incredible. It has been, you know, been um largely uh donations of less than a hundred you know hundred dollars you know i'm sound like uh like bernie now you know but it's been yeah. like you know folks throwing in five bucks ten bucks fifty a hundred a couple of bigger ones then we set up a 501c3 uh you know uh not for profit you know red got that up and going on the fly and so we've had direct donations now to that some larger donations so daniel craig for example was one of the first folks that i reached out to they said, Daniel, hey, we're doing this thing. We, we, we're, we're, you know, we've got some, uh, some good traction here. Will you help us out? So he's thrown in a good chunk. You know, Spike, uh, Spike Lee, uh, who grew up in this neighborhood and whose headquarters for 40 Acres and a Mule is in, is in uh, Fort Greene. He threw in some money. Jay-Z gave us a little money, uh, a good, you know, good, good amount of money. Uh, and, uh, and some other folks, you know, I'm doing, you know, throwing in a, a nickel or two here. So we've got... Um, We've raised about $450,000 in total, evenly split between those big donors and the smaller donors. So it's pretty cool, pretty democratic in that regard. Wow. Yeah, that's that's what it is. But, you know, it's really just been a grassroots thing, man. And it's like these these restaurant owners taken, you know, just jazzed to be vital at this time, even more so than than usual. Uh, obviously, you know, they're supporting the front line. And at the same time, they're supporting themselves, but they really feel that they're on a mission, you know, and it's it's kind of cool because it's a bit in some ways a kind of circular altruism, uh, you know, uh, circularly altruistic kind of model, because, you know, we, the community that are supporting them with our donations are as well looking after our own interests, too, because we want those hospital workers to be uh, as empowered as they possibly can for, on our behalf. You know, and we want our economy too uh, to be as stable as it, you know, can be given the circumstances. So whatever we can do to support them supports us too. So you know, it's been pretty, it's been pretty cool the way the things played out. And also, like you know, here I am talking about doing nothing and and having a reset or whatever. But you're, you know, you're in it and you're a community uh, activist and you're, you know, you're you're facilitating a, an amazing thing. You're busy. You're you're adapting and uh, and and putting yourself out there and helping out. Yeah, I'm busier than I had planned. Yeah, it's you know, but it's been <laughs> it's it's definitely you know definitely true. But it's been it's been cool. The organization, by the way, is called Brooklyn for Life. So if you're interested, you can go check us out at brooklynforlife.org, or you can go to our GoFundMe page. You know, GoFundMe Brooklyn for Life. But if you go to Brooklyn for Life, okay. brooklynforlife.org. You can uh, you can you can see the GoFundMe page there. Also, there's a there's a, a, a video that uh, that we put together. It's kind of a celebration of Brooklyn and kind of a you know rallying cry at the same time. So you can check that out too. You know everybody from everybody from James Bond to Big Daddy Kane came through, but also representatives of the restaurants and the EMS stations and doctors and nurses made sure that their voices were uh, were uh, were as prominent as as ours so that you can check that out. it's pretty cool yeah yeah but yeah man so i've i've been a little i've been busy but it's been good cuz i it's i've kept the television off cuz i was about to throw wine bottles at that fucking thing if i kept it on too much uh, longer so 
it's been healthy for me. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't watch any of them. Yeah, I did not watch one of those briefings because after a certain point, you know what's yeah. up, and it's then you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this to <laughs> yeah. myself every yeah. day? Yeah, wait, do it. Is is this hate buzz helping anything? Yeah. You know, is this anger buzz? helping anything it, it, exactly and you know so what I, I what i've what i've hopefully been able to do is channel that rage because yeah. it is rage you know through this thing yeah in a, in a cr- constructive creative way because you know at the end of the day it's like hey it's very clear early on and particularly after this call too you know uh that i just got off with off with these uh 200 business owners you know Okay, the government is supposed to, you know, have our best interests. We understand what government is ideally for, but in this case, with this leadership, you know, you can't rely on on that necessarily. And and damn it, we'd take it up and do it on do it, you know, do it ourselves and get it done um, because uh, you know this thing is uh, is just a, a, a you know a clown show, you know, doused in kerosene. You know, it's you know. Uh, uh, the, the 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 one that I watched that was useful to me was I think it was March thirteenth, the Rose Garden thing. The, I guess it was the first of the Rose Garden press conferences when all there was that parade of CEOs from Walgreen, Walmart, CVS, and all these people who were like you know like ushered out as somehow uh, healthcare uh, saviors. Uh, you know the the guy from Walmart. Yeah. Okay, My- cool. You know, so I was in London, <laughs> right? We were filming Batman over there. And uh, I had been coming back and forth. Uh, we started filming January 5th. I'd made about four trips back, and I was kind of worn out of coming back and forth to check in on my kids and my aunt. My 90-year-old aunt lives with, with me here now. Anyway, I uh, saw that press conference. I think it was March 13th after work. Got off work, came home, yeah. watched that thing. And I was yeah. like, what the what I yeah. and I immediately, when it was over, booked my own flight home from London. I was like, "Man, we got to get out of here." And I started sending notes to producers. I'm like, "Bro, we have to get out of here because either we're gonna get stuck over here, uh, you know, the UK wasn't included in the travel restrictions at that time, but the rest of Europe was, which like made no sense whatsoever, uh, sense whatsoever, completely arbitrary." So I was like, man, we got to get out of here. We're either going to get stuck. We're going to get forced into quarantine or something like that. We're gonna, but we need to go now and get back because, you know, it's, uh, you know, yeah. the, uh, lunatics, uh, you know, have taken over the asylum and uh, it's not going to yeah. be it's not going to be pretty. So anyway, that was useful to me. And you got back. I got back and, yeah. The two right. days later. Well, you, you got it. You got ahead of the curve. Yeah. So I, I noticed that, like, you know, you know switching uh, topics like I noticed that both of us did that uh, finding your root show like oh, I yeah. was just on it as well yeah and uh, and my experience was I didn't know what to expect really and you, you know I didn't know you know like uh, you know I, you think you know about your family or at least you know as as a you know basic uh, you know Jew I kind of know where the Jews <laughs> come from basic. but <laughs> okay right okay you know, it's like it's gonna be gonna be Russia or Poland or Germany. Where are we at? <laughs> right, you know, so right. 
but you know, but, but I the nuance of it. The, weren't you uh, sort of amazed at the research that those guys could do? Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. With you know, what'd you learn, man? Well, they learned a lot. Learned a tremendous amount. It was an incredible gift. But there were a couple of specific things that were uh, that I found that I found interesting. Obviously, for me personally, um, one was. So, so he, he centered on my grandfather to some extent, and my grandfather was—he uh, was an incredible dude, man. He was a waterman, uh, as were I found out. You know, generations of my family down in Virginia were watermen, oystermen, crabbers on the Chesapeake, the Lower Chesapeake Bay. Right? He was that. Yeah. He was also a farmer, and he was a—he uh, was a, a liquor guy. So, you know, back when I was in the seventies. You could, you, you know, there were no bars in, you know, this very rural section of York County, Virginia, and you had to get liquor from the ABC store, the state run store. I used to go on runs with my grandfather, you know, yeah. and, you know, along this road, it was essentially one road community. Essentially, there were houses that you could stop at on the way to your house for a shot. For a 50 cent shot. <laughs> so my grandfather's yeah. uh, house was one of those houses. You know, there was Morris Combs up on the corner. Next one was my Uncle Ivy. He always had a little bit of something. And then, you know, uh, my grandfather. <laughs> and so people would come out of the water, or, you know, off the water or out of their fields or from the shipyard or wherever they were working, they would gather. And it, it was just a crazy, incredible scene, you know, just like st yeah, story yeah. and drink and madness and you know but but in the best way so i learned that my so my grandfather prior to my being born had been a moonshiner which i knew right oh, he had a still okay. back up in the yeah. woods you know and he right. he, that yeah. he made you know he put his daughters through college and his sons you know voc one of his sons vocational school and you know he was you know he was doing okay <clears throat> but yeah. but what they what i learned was that was how he learned to make whiskey. And this was, oh, and this wow. actually relates to today in some ways. I knew that my grandfather um, had stopped going to school uh, when he was 14 to work. He was, born, yeah. he was born in 1904, stopped going to school at 14. What year is that? 1918. World War I. Well, yes, and the flu pandemic. Oh, the flu epidemic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So his father... I found out died of influenza. No shit. His mother, um, my great grandmother, took up whiskey making to augment her income, and he learned to make whiskey from his mom after her after her husband died. And I was like, "Whoa, wow, yeah, you know, wow, yeah." I thought that was. Uh, I thought I I had never known that. I just knew he was skilled at it, but now I know why. You know. Yeah, I found out that uh, some of my great-great-grandparent uh, Jews actually worked in oil fields in Belarus, in the Ukraine, uh, one of the first major Soviet oil rigs. Wow. So there were J Jewish wildcatters in my past. That's the way I'm going to frame Jewish it. Jewish wildcatters. That's <laughs> there you go. So you come. You grew up in the, Virginia? Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, but I, okay. but I spent a lot of time down in York County, Virginia. My mom would, would, you know, the school would end. She'd drive me down there and then she'd turn around and go back uh, to DC and I would stay there for, in, you know, the entire summers. That was like, you know, I was, that was my routine. 
and it was, you know, it was amazing down there. It was like, it was like heaven for a kid, you know, it was just like wood, woods, yeah, woods and creeks. It's all now been, you know, overrun with, uh, you know, developments and, you know, the cookie cutter things and the, you know, the, the, you oh, know, yeah, what, yeah. it's, yeah, it's really kind of fascinating because all of those fields that I remember being cornfields and the like are now, um, these, you know, subdivisions. And so the food that was being provided there is no longer there. Those subdivisions are now, you know, they're buying their food. The people from those places are buying their food at the, 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 you know, the Applebee's and the whatever else and all these other places, you know, it's kind of like cancer on multiple yeah. levels, you know, like you, you, you yeah. fly over and you see how, you know, this, the these subdivisions have taken over this beautiful part of the uh you know part of the world and uh they look kind of cancerous to me on the rivers and then you know just the ways in which all that organic produce and stuff that was being uh you know that was being consumed down there all that stuff is gone in exchange for you know the uh the big uh you know the big uh kind of chains and all that stuff it's agribusiness a, yeah, yeah sure you know, yeah yeah it's yeah. definitely yeah now yeah, it's got it it, it it takes a bunch of uh you know uh, uh hipsters and sort of uh, post hippie young people to kind of get back to the uh, organic nature of things and then it's sort of a boutique sort of <laughs> business where theoretically if everything was one properly we'd all be living like that yeah. but uh that is a uh, not the corporate way yeah, and we were <laughs> we were living like that yeah. you know and it wasn't yep, it wasn't sure. it wasn't a thing but you you asked me what they're, they're about you, the research down there you know that they did that skip yeah, people did yeah, i'll tell you yeah. i'll tell you a quick quick thing that um that uh, i'd like to just to to kind of explore more so he told me about a my grandfather's surname was whiting and he told me about this i think my great great grandfather whose name was beverly whiting who had been uh a, a free a free man right prior to the civil war because you found him in the census didn't it but then as you go further back in the census he disappears so he was you know uh he became free at some point and then he disappears into the bondage you know uh pri prior don't know what happened curious but this name beverly whiting you know beverly i thought it was it was like ah, interesting name um so i started kind of digging around um no, actually, I, again, back to Twitter. Somebody saw the, the show and DM'd me and said, hey, did you know that your uh, ancestor, Beverly Whiting, fought in the Civil War uh, with the first colored cavalry of Virginia? And I was like, oh, wow. So I dug in and I looked around and it was like, huh. Uh, it, was a not, it was a different Beverly Whiting who lived in the neighboring oh. county, Gloucester County. Uh -huh. My grandfather was born like on the border, like across the river from Gloucester in York County, but right on the edge there. But there was another Beverly Whiting. Then I dug around again. I saw, I found a, 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 a third Beverly Whiting, which, who was a young boy, what? young boy who was taken on a ship to New Orleans, a slave ship. He's listed among the inventory. Right. Because even uh -huh. though the international slave trade had been abolished, there was still domestic trade, slave, slave trade uh, allowed in this country. I forget exactly when, but it but it, it, it was allowed uh, even after the abolishment of the international slave trade. Then I found a fourth Beverly Whiting. 
And I was like, where's this name? What? Beverly? Yeah. And the fourth Beverly Whiting was white guy, right? Born, I think it was in 1707, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 1707. This Beverly Whiting, right, I think yeah. might have been the namesake for these others. Because, and I need to understand, you know, because obviously the name Whiting comes from, you know, some migrating Brit, you know. So uh, yeah. if you, sla slaves, and this guy was a slave owner, slave owner, you know, the name, you know, doubtless these Beverly's were related somehow, perhaps somehow. Um, but or at least on the same uh, on the same piece of property. Exactly, exactly. And and do you know who this Beverly, this uh, white Beverly, white Virginian Beverly Whiting was? No, it was the godfather of George Washington. What? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wild man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something I need to like dig down in a bit more. But they they you know Skip Gates and those folks led me on that uh, journey. It's it's so wild, you know, that that so much, I guess, of the African-American stories, you know, you can't get back to Africa that easily. So you're going to end up in these colonies. Yep. You know, there's only you know, there's only a handful of places you're going to end up that at where the beginning yep. of that story in America happens. Recording of it, you know, is these things just disappear back, you know, as you the farther you go back very often and we become mysteries to ourselves. You know, it was another interesting thing he showed me on my father's side, who they're from the Carolinas, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, that there was a guy named Workman, Workman yeah. McDowell, which is a hell of a name, yeah. you know, antebellum name for a black man in this country, Workman, you know, <laughs> but he yeah. he too had been free at some point prior and you know and and then disappears as you go back and in trying to track him they found a mcdowell family that was a slave owning fa family that happened to live and according to these records right you know five miles or a few miles up from where workmen uh lived right so the assumption was that you know might have been uh, on that uh that estate or whatever and he showed me um a census record from that plantation or whatever it was, you know, state farm, yeah. whatever the heck, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it. So, um, right. And it has the name of the McDowell, the names of the McDowell family. And then it has 54 essentially blank spaces with young man, uh, uh, black male, 26 girl, black 13, you know, but no names, just 54 blank spaces. One of those blank wow. spaces, it seems by age, might have been Workman, my great-great-grandfather. But, you know, that's to your point. You go back and what do you see there? You find, the, you know, the attempt to render people invisible. And they kind of, yeah. you know, just vanish in the, back into the mists of history. It's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. But like Workman, that's like a that's like a title. It was probably a title before it was a name, obviously. Yeah, or it certainly was. You know, like that's what the guy did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or it certainly it was a directive. Yeah. 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 But that's but that, these are the similarities. So, so how did your folks get to a D.C.? I mean, D.C. My, my mom came up to D.C. in 1957 to go to. uh go to law school um yeah. she graduated what was then hampton institute 
uh, down in uh, Hampton, Virginia, and then she came up and uh, she went to Howard Law School, uh, graduated there in 61, and then from there went to work for the U.S. Customs Service. She was the, I think, third woman customs law specialist, first black woman customs law specialist then, and she and my aunt, uh, who uh, came up uh, maybe a few months later, uh, was a nurse at D.C. General Hospital for uh, 35 years. My mom was at Customs wow. for 32, 34 years, whatever it was, you know, forever. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's they, so the, I was raised by my mom and, and my aunt. Uh, they, you know, they came up and they lived together in D.C., um, you know, from 57 until my mom passed uh, last fall. Yeah. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thanks, man. So, with the, where was your old man? You, where was he at? He, my, my, my dad died uh, in '67. Uh, he oh, really? uh, and my mom were actually separated pretty early. You know, when I started to, uh, when I started acting, uh, one of his best friends uh, from who grew up with him in Greensboro, North Carolina, said, uh, "I told him, I said, you know, OT, I'm, uh, you know, uh, you know." I uh, think I'm going to start acting. Yes, you know, I really dig this thing. He said, well, he said, your old man was, uh, he said, uh, your old man was a bit of a song and dance man. He just never made it to the stage. <laughs> you know, So it kind of, <laughs> as far as he describes, came naturally. Um, but, uh, but when he, when he died, he was actually, um, he was here up in, he was here in New York and he actually was oversaw sales for Rheingold beer here in Brooklyn, that was uh, that was his, oh, really? that was his gig. Yeah, he was a sales executive at Rheingold. He did some other things too. He used to run a uh, a bar down in the village, a place called Romero's. That's kind of a storied place. Uh, you know, he was a man about town. You know, he was sure. one of those. Guys. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. The man about town guy. In in fact, this picture here. Is if you I don't know if you can see it in the background that picture there, I've kind of pushed yeah. stuff aside, aside because you know these interviews and stuff that I've been doing. But uh, yeah. that picture is to my dad. That's one of the few things that I have from it, and that's Miles Davis playing guitar shirtless. Oh yeah, it says to Jimmy from Miles. Yeah, take all the money. All, all, all. <laughs> that's what that's. <laughs> so he and me and my dad were apparently pretty tight. And uh, when my uncle, his, his brother, passed away year about twenty years ago, so now I went down to uh, his uh, his funeral down in Greensboro, and there was a guy there named Buddy Gist who was very good friends with my dad and with my uncle and had traveled, was tight with Miles. And Buddy was a bit of a yeah. song and dance man himself, from what I understand, you know. And uh, But he was, you know, he one of those guys, you know. And, uh, and I told him that I had this picture. He said, you got that? I said, yeah. He said, he said man, I traveled with Miles. He, he said, you got something. He said, because, man, I traveled with Miles for 35 years. I saw him sign three autographs. So he said, yeah, you got something there, man. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No kid. So, so your dad was running with a pretty, uh, pretty fun and fast crew there. Yeah, he was a, he was, um, you know, as, as I understand it, he was, uh, he was a pretty, you know, 
pretty well 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 liked you know well loved guy probably a little bit too much which uh you know might not have been good for him at the end of the day well it's interesting that you took it upon yourself to do all this research because i mean some people don't do it you know some people who have you know parents that are absent they're just like fuck them but like it's nice that you kind of got a full kind of sense of who he is or who he was yeah, maybe some of it is mythologized too, but he kind of had a bit of a mythic thing about him. You know, people like, you know, people have, you know, still, like, when I mentioned that he was my dad, if I've never met him, they like, they brighten, like, eyes brighten, and they have oh, some yeah? kind of crazy story. Like, I, I met this guy uh, at another funeral, because this is how you meet, you know, become, uh, recently, who um, he said that. He knew my dad, and he and he said, "Man, he said I had just gotten out of the army." <laughs> he said, "This is I guess it was the Korean War, maybe." He said, "Just gotten out of the army, and I had saved up some money. I think he said he had saved up like four or five thousand dollars or something like this. May I maybe been you know whatever the number was, but it was a significant amount of money." He said, "Yeah, I saved up this money, man." He said. And, and 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 your uncle and your uncle and me, we went up to uh, to meet your dad up in New York. He said, yeah. <laughs> "That money was gone by the end of the weekend. <laughs> they were just living. <laughs> Who knows what they were doing?" But he was that kind of guy. But that, I mean, but again, he like just came to life. He was laughing and came to life when he when he thought about him. So, but at the same time, at, so to your fun. point, you know. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I you know, I, I kind of missed him in some ways, but at the same time, I never knew him. And, and I think maybe the influence of my mother and my aunt was probably a healthier one on for me. So, uh, you yeah. know, it, uh, it it's all well, good. It's all good. It's sort of fun. It's sort of amazing, though, because like there is um, like oddly one of the performances that I can never get out of my head that, that you did was you know around a father-son relationship was it, it was that moment those moments in um syriana mm. uh with with you know which is a side story to your character was is this alcoholic father mm. but that you know that thing was so loaded up yeah there was so much you know, you know sort of you know horrific anger but yet at the same time the need to take care of this guy yeah. Almost out of a, a lack of, you had a choice, but but you still did, and it was causing that character to eat himself alive a bit. Yeah, you know, do you do you remember you know reaching into yourself to find that dude? Well, you know, sure. I mean, that's part of the gig, right? You know, you kind of take yeah. uh, you take from those um, at least those rooms that you have that are filled up with those you know thoughts and emotions and things and experiences and. You, try to pluck whatever would fit into um, whatever story you're trying to tell. So, yeah, that was, um, yeah. But, you know, and that's that's not an unusual story for, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks in our country, a lot of you know, black men, particularly in our country, in terms of complicated relationships with, 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 with their fathers, complicated relationships with, you know, um, uh, males in the family who kind of lose track, you know, and uh, and kind of go off the rails a little bit. Yeah, the new movie is about that too. It's heavy, man. That all oh, day yeah. and, and night is like, holy fuck, man. That's a that's that's hardcore movie, dude. Oh, did you see it? Yeah, I saw oh. it. Oh, yeah, cool. it's great. Oh, cool, You're, man. That was an amazing uh, performance on your part, but also that kid. What's his name? Oh, Ashton. Ashton's yeah. He's he's yeah. super bad, man. Yeah, he's a great. You know, he was in Moonlight and 
uh, yeah. I thought his performance in Moonlight was just like so stellar. And uh, I was like, whoa, this, you know, I, I was surprised that he didn't get more, you know, not that it matters because it's, you know, it's ridiculous. But if they're giving those things out, if they're giving out the accolades, you know, give them out to, yeah. you know, give them out right, you know. And uh, I thought yeah. he was, uh, you know, you know, he's, yeah, but that's, you know. It's funny. I was just watching. Uh, they asked me to do this thing, and I was just watching uh, 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 Sid and Nancy. You know, Gary yeah. Oldman, Gary Oldman, that Chloe Webb, and that that movie made fifty percent of the budget, right? That uh, and 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 no one got recognized for their performances or direction. I was like, "Are you?" I mean, you know. So you know, I remember talking to Gary one time when we. I think it was when we were doing Basquiat. And he was like, he was like, right, you know, I've got, I got, you know, talking about awards or some, I don't know how it came up. He said, yeah, I've got, you know, three, three, every performance I've ever given should have been, <laughs> should have been awarded, you know, but, uh, but I really, you know, yeah, Ashton is, Ashton is really a, a wonderful young actor. And there, there, there is a slew of those young actors out here now, black actors, particularly who are doing some interesting stuff. Like I, I don't know, I don't know anything about that life. So any time that I get something and I look at it and I can see there's an authenticity to it, uh, you know, it, it really kind of affects me in, in an eye-opening way. Well, this movie for me <clears throat> was really in some ways a kind of companion piece uh, to another film. Actually, two other films. One hasn't come out yet, but the the the, the film that really piqued my interest even more in this side of this kind of incarceration, uh, you know, uh, cycle of criminality and violence story was uh, OG, which was a film that we shot in a working maximum security prison in Indiana and largely with uh, co-stars who were incarcerated men. There were only three of us who played incarcerated men who were, you know, had the freedom to walk outside the gate oh. every day. Everybody else was in my co-star was serving a sentence of 65 years for attempted murder. I think his sentence has been extended now. That's another story. But um, all of these guys were, you know, serving long sentences. And I went to the prison over the course of a year prior to uh, prior to um, uh, filming to meet with them and talk with them and understand their stories a bit and, you know, figure out if I could find a way into it. And uh and in talking with them, and then, of course, we filmed for, you know, 13 hours a day, six weeks on the inside. In talking to them, they were almost consistently, they would almost consistently describe um, the influence of their fathers um, yeah. as being problematic. Uh, you know, parental right. abuse, parental drug, uh, you know, neglect, you know, uh, drug abuse, all of these things. And so... Um, this story, all in all day and a night, is you know I was playing an incarcerated man in OG, but a father in uh, in this who ultimately is you know uh, winds up uh, you know incarcerated with his son, which is another story that I saw in you know in the flesh inside that prison. But yeah, yeah, this story was you know just kind of looking at it from a different angle and. And, and it was really, in, in, in some ways, driven by my experiences with those guys at Pendleton out, out in Indiana. That, that is, like, I performed once in a prison, and the, you know, the, the, the shift in the way the culture of prison works in, on, in, in terms of energy, when you enter that building, the sort of electricity of it is completely, uh, was 
overwhelming and disturbing to me. Uh, yeah. You know, I know there are a lot of people, you know, like it's like it's its own organism. Yeah. You know, in terms of how life works. Yeah. And, and the air is super, super heavy and charged. I mean, like you can right. physically feel like that energy you talk yeah. about. Yeah. It's super, it's super hardcore. And, uh, but you know what? The weird thing was, the thing that was really startling to me um, was that, you know, we would film on an active cell block, for example, you know, the scenes that took place inside the cell. There was, you know, a guy next door to me who was serving time, you know, on either side, right? And I'm walking around in the onesie and stuff, and they're like, hey, bro, can you, you know, and this is evenly split white and black, because in Indiana, the demographics were interesting, you know, you rural, poor, urban, poor, you know, and there's a guy, he's a, this guy, uh, white guy, he's like, hey, 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 brother, you, uh, you, you, you got any books? I read all my books. You got any, he saw me come by, he thought, you know, because we're, I'm like, uh, actually, yeah, bro. Well, yeah, man. I actually, I do. So I went back and I found some. <laughs> what did I found? Some there were some westerns that I had in there, and I had Moby Dick, and I had something else, you know, as as set pieces, as props, you know. So I kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. I wasn't supposed to do it to give, but I kind of backed up to him the counter and like slid him the books. He's like, "Thanks, thank you, brother." And the guy next door, he goes, he goes, he, he thinks he thinks you're one of us, bro. I'm like, you know, yeah, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> But um, but uh, the but 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 to my your your point about the the intensity in there, the thing that I found shocking was that when I was inside the cell, and if we had a little bit of downtime in between shots, setting it up, I would stay in there because we didn't have any you know there's no green room or anything, there were no trailers, so yeah. I would hang in the cell. They would close the gate, you know. We were still crew, and we had one guard who was you know there. And I would just chill there, rest, read, you know, whatever, you know, I had music. There was a TV. I watched the, uh, I think, the, the Democratic uh, Convention, you know, watched it. And I realized yeah. in that space, you know, had, you know, little some snacks. I realized you could actually get used to it, you know, and you could kind of sure. settle in. And that was really, that kind of jacked me up a little bit to see how easily you might adapt to being confined in that way. That's why those guys sometimes have a hard time coming out too, because all of those decision-making processes have atrophied for them. And, you or, know, they, they come or out. Or they never like, had them. Right, right. And they certainly weren't exercised in there. And they come out and it's like, you know, it, it leads to, you know, it's at times to recidivism if they haven't uh, been able to, pro, you know, to, to, to adapt. They adapted in there, but adapting on the outside is even, yeah. even more, more tricky. Yeah. So when you started acting, like, what did you? When did you decide to do it? Like, you just were? Were you in high school? What happened? No, I was in college. I was a junior in college. Yeah, I was a political science major in college, and then freaked out one day and started acting. You know? Yeah. You freaked out? I, what do you mean? You freaked no. Out? <laughs> no. Well, I'm you know I'm still trying to figure out how I got here. No, it was you know it was something that had been in the back of my head that I was kind of a. I don't know. Uh, I was kind of afraid to like jump into it. Really, I always went to plays with my mom as a kid. She would take me to all the shows that came through DC. You know, all the yeah. big musicals like you know The Wiz and Bubbling Brown Sugar. But also, like I remember seeing Give 'Em Hell Harry with James Whitmore. You know about Harry Truman and seventeen seventy six. Yeah. And uh, there was a I think uh, Avery Brooks did a one man Paul Robeson uh, show. There was. 
you know, I mean, just a variety of stuff in Tazaki Shange. I mean, she took me, she just took me to, you know, to everything that came to town. And I always, th- those, those experiences were always deeply, deeply like meaningful for me. And I was always enthralled by it in a way, probably that was over a little over the, you know, my, it just, you know, my, you know, even after the curtain dropped, you know, I was always, yeah. I was sure, I was sure that that world had been, that it, that had been created on stage was carrying on, you know, even after the, so I was, I was well, <laughs> well into it, you know, but I never did anything in high school, man. I never did it. I was always like, ah, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, was a little bit, you know, yeah, until my junior year of college. And uh, one day, um, a friend of mine took this acting class. And in the, I think it was in the, if I remember, in the uh, fall semester. And uh, what school? at the end of the, uh, I went to Amherst up in uh, Amherst okay. College. Oh, yeah. In, oh, yeah. Up, oh, really? You're up there? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so at the end of at the end of the semester, they put on a production. So he asked me to come see his, his see him. Perform. I said, yeah, man, I'll come. So I went to see I said, damn, I can do that at least, you know. So the next <laughs> so, the, so, <laughs> so the next semester I took that class and uh, and I also did a play uh, that was directed by a, a student, uh, a guy named Kevin Frazier, who actually uh, passed away of AIDS uh, a few years after I graduated. But a uh, beautiful young guy. And he adapted a Wallace Terry uh, novel called Bloods that was recollection of recollections of black Vietnam veterans uh, about their huh. experiences in the war. He did a, he kind of w- wove together a night of monologues. That was the first thing I did. That was my junior year. And then, you know, it was like, yeah, I kind of, you know, kind of this kind of makes sense to me. And so I've been doing it ever since. Did you did you train it all after? Well, yeah, I went uh, I left, uh, graduated. Um, I went back to D.C. Uh, and I my first gig down in D.C. was Children's Theater. Actually, I was on, you know, I was, I was touring here. I was, you know, be with this B.A. in political science running around doing children's theater for like, you know, preschoolers and, tea and you know, up to, you know, elementary kids, American history, you know, uh, through folktales. And uh, and I was waiting tables at night. And then I got a, a uh, like a bit part at uh, an All's Well That Ends Well at the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger when it was there. And then I got a gig in Lorraine Hansberry's last play, a play that she wrote as she was um, as she died, called Le Blanc. And that was my first like kind of significant role. That was at Arena Stage, which is kind of a storied theater, regional theater in D.C. And because of that, Zelda Fitchhandler, who found that founded that theater and at the time ran the uh, drama department at Tisch at NYU, the grad school, invited yeah. me to come up to uh, to go to go to school. So that's how I came to New York. Uh, she gave me a full ride. I came up to uh, to you know I think it was July Fourth weekend of nineteen eighty eight to New York, and then you know was in you know enrolled in, enrolled in school that September of eighty eight. And I quit after two months, and uh, I left to do that play Le Blanc up in Boston uh, because I, I I just thought I, I I I you know I did better working than I did you know kind of you know acting in a classroom, and so uh, I came back to came back to New York here to Fort Greene uh, like January February of eighty nine, and I start and I kept working in the theater. I would go back to Arena Stage. I would go up to Yale Rep, uh, like like every year for three years. Lloyd Richards, who was the uh, artistic director uh, at the time at the at the Rep and headed the drama school, 
they give me a job every every year. So my training took place in that way. And the people, the directors that were hiring me were very often teachers themselves. Uh, you know, like, you know, guys who taught up at Yale or, um, you know, a guy who took me under his wing was a, uh, who kind of mentored me, a guy named Joe Dowling, who, uh, who was uh, uh, Irish. He had run the Abbey Theater in Dublin and then later came over here to run the Guthrie Theater for many years out in Minnesota. But he took me under his wing, you know. He gave me my first piece of Shakespeare, and you know, they were, they were, I, had a, I had a number of you know, uh, early directors who really you know, like took an interest in me and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and shared, shared a little, little knowledge with me. So that's, that was how I trained. So that's interesting. Yeah, so, you had, you know, so it was almost like you had the, obviously the basic raw talent to do it, and you were effective at it, but every time you were able to work with a, a director of a certain ilk, uh, you were kind of molded a bit and given new tools. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I did theater as pretty much essentially for seven about seven years. I did a little bit of film here, a little film there, but from the time I was like twenty one to like you know it was like boom. It was until Basquiat. I was twenty eight, I think twenty eight or twenty nine when I did Basquiat, and so it was like pretty much all theater, regional theater, and then finally you know Broadway with Angels in America was like at the end of that seven year period. But uh, and that was like, you know, that was that was a, that was a, that was a, uh, a university in and of itself, that experience, you know. Like doing like with Shakespeare and stuff, what do you is so it's interesting because I'll, I'll ask actors about process and, you know, how the, ultimately everyone's going to put together their own you know, set of tools or however they're going to do it. You know what I mean? There's no way to say like, well, you do this, you do this, you do this, because everyone's going to do it their way. But, you know, from taking from all these different people, you know, and adding it to, you know, your natural ability. I mean, what do you remember every time that you go into a role? You know, how do you start? And, you know, where did you get that information? Like, do you do you look back at the people that guided you early on? Is there any bit of information that, you know, really stands out as like that? That was that was it. Well, I mean, I think you, you you put it all in the in the in your pocket, you know what I mean, and you pull out as yeah. as needed, and it all kind of merges together, you know. Um, so many great influences, and also other actors that you work with. I mean, for example, you yeah. talk about Shakespeare. One guy who taught me perhaps more than any other one individual about performing Shakespeare is somehow is is someone you probably wouldn't expect, and that's Chris cool. Walken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, again, Joe, this guy, Joe Dowling, gave me a, a gig, you know, bit part, Shakespeare in the Park. I think I was, I don't know, 23 yeah. years old, 20, whatever it was. And Chris Walken played Iago to Raul Julia's Othello. And I talk about this with, um, with like, if I, if I talk to, you know, young, you know, actors um, now, you know, sometimes I'll go and, you know, talk to a class. And uh, I'll talk about Walken, particularly um, relative to Shakespeare, because, you know, Walken's from Queens, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And and, and Chris... A song yeah, and dance, man. It's, it's Chris. Yeah, yeah, badass, yeah. But when he does Shakespeare, um, he's not interested in any affectation, you know? It's Chris Walken. Zvlads, but you'll not hear me. I mean, it's, you know, it's... And he pers he personalizes that language, and 
just kind of destroys any unnecessary reverence for it, which is particularly important, I think, for an American actor to claim yeah. it in in his own voice and in his own rhythms and his own tones. And I mean, right. he's he, he's he's one of, if not the smartest actor I've ever uh, had the, the 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 privilege of working with. And uh, yeah. You know, because, you know, there's nothing more annoying than seeing an, an American actor do some kind of faux, fake-ass, British, weird, half-British accent when doing Shakespeare. You sure. Know what I mean, it's just so unnatural and weird, you know? It can go either way, you know? I'm not a big Shakespeare guy, but the few times I've seen Americans do Shakespeare, like, I think I saw William Hurt do one of them. I don't Richard II or something. I was a huge William Hurt fan. It was back in, when I was in high school, probably. And it was almost impossible to decipher what the fuck he was doing up there. But that might have been because it was Shakespeare. But I knew he was mm. personalizing it. You know, but I, mm. I, I've always had a problem with Shakespeare until Ian McKellen sat across from me and did it in my face. Like I told uh. him, I said, I have a hard time following the language. And he did this monologue right to my face. And I'm like, OK, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. If it's done, if it's done right, it's clear. Yeah. And so like with the Angels in America, I believe I probably saw you in that because when did that when what year was that, man? That was like that was 1993. Were, and that was the first you were original cast guy. I was original Broadway cast, yeah. I didn't do it out in L.A. I didn't do it up in the, uh, San Francisco. But when it came to Broadway, the, yeah, I was in the original Broadway cast, yeah, for a year and a half. Yeah, seven hours play, a year and a half. So you were there. So you were there. Did, were you part of him, sort of workshopping it as well, Kushner? Well, when we when when they came to Broadway, there'd been another actor who was playing. You know my. Uh, the Belize, uh, who, you know, beautiful actor, but, you know, they decided to make a change, you know, and so I um, got the role. And uh, as George Wolf said, I, 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 you know, he says uh, uh, in, in the casting process, he said, I, I saw 8,000 Negroes. I chose you, <laughs> you know? So, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, uh, so we were, so, so Tony was still working through the script. They were still script changes, but, um, you know, it was largely as, you know, as you see it now. However, when we did Perestroika, the second half, um, there's a, there's, 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 there's a, there's one particular scene that he kind of, you know, I guess as he wrote for me, uh, which was pretty, which was pretty incredible, pretty gratifying. Oh, wow. It's a be beautiful piece of writing. It's a heaven, a description of heaven that, uh, Belize, the character who's a nurse, to uh, dying uh, Roy Cohn, uh, who's dying of AIDS, and, and Cohn, Roy, in his hallucination, hallucinatory state, kind of comes to him, and and you know believes just describes to him his idea of heaven, which is not uh, what uh, what uh, Roy Cohn's uh, doesn't quite match his expectations. It's a beautiful piece of poetry, dramatic poetry, and uh, yeah, so that was that was new. You know, Tony wrote that and said, "Here, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote this here. Read it." And I'm like, "Wow." You know, because we were, because we, because what we, what we did was we did the first, if I recall, we did the first part for about, we rehearsed for three months, then we performed for three months, then we kind yeah. of backtracked a little bit and we performed half the time and we were, or we performed during the day. Sorry, we were performed the first part at night and we yeah. rehearsed the second part during the day for another three months and then until we had, had both parts up and running. So, it was pretty crazy, uh, crazy, but super fun process. And Kushner was just coming into like, you know, his whole trip. 
Do you are you like do you are you guys friends? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, we reach out from time to time. I see him here and there, but yeah, yeah. I mean, those guys. I mean, Kushner, George Wolf as well, who directed. George is the godfather to my kids now, but yeah. I mean, those guys. Those guys changed yeah. my changed my changed my life and like changed my whole you know molecular structure in profound ways. You know, with uh, with what they with what they gave me. Well, I mean, like molecular structure in the sense, not just career wise, but in terms of what you're capable of as an artist. Yeah, sure. That and just as a as a human being, as a citizen. You yeah. Know? I mean that pay, that 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 play is very much about citizenship, um, yeah. And and it was also it kind of afforded me this uh, gift or curse I don't know however way you look at it of of um, of expectation that you can merge politics with with you know creativity these might you know two interests of mine that they can be merged or in fact they should be merged you know particularly you know in urgent times and so that was a real you know license. Um, from, you know, that I got from, from them, from, you know, from Tony's, you know, writing, uh, particularly that, you know, this was, this was, this was the, this was right, you know, and it was necessary, you know. How, how often does that happen? Um, it happens, uh, you know, <laughs> at the same time, I'm, I'm someone who tends to see politics and everything anyway, you know. Sure. Right, right, I mean, right. you know, sure. uh, yeah. you know, there, there's political elements to Westworld, you know. Um, you know, sure, the, the, of this, the, the film, uh, all day and the night, you know, there, obviously there, there's a political undercurrent to that, you know? Um, yeah. so I watched, uh, I watched uh, ride with the devil recently. Oh yeah. 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 That's, I, that's yeah. a kind of a unique, interesting movie politically and, and, and racially and, and American history wise. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that movie. And I think I have a particular place in my heart for it because it was undermined by the studio um, because of some of the kind of peculiarities of it that they didn't know quite how to deal with, you know. You know, that you had this black character who was fighting on the side of the Confederacy just kind of blew their fucking minds, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, this kind of, you know, quasi-liberal, you know, just all of, like, the constructs that they, you know, understood history to be and also understood in terms of... Um, the 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 alliance, you know. You don't make a movie where the heroes are, are Confederate rebels. Yeah, but in you know, and but in fact, you know, for me, what the story was about, particularly relative to this black character who was actually based on a on a scout, uh, a, a historical figure who um, who rode with uh, Quantrill uh, in raiding Kansas. Uh, Goddamn, his name escapes me. This guy, this guy, but um, was that he was a guy who wasn't waiting to be emancipated, you know, by the great white savior. But had to go through, you know, do the hard work of emancipating himself, you know, of winning his right, own freedom. Right. And that's for for me, that was so much more powerful. But for them, they couldn't quite, uh, pa you know, they couldn't quite palate it. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, they took me like, you know, they weird shit happened. They, you know, they took me off the poster. It was like me, Toby, McGuire, Skeet Ulrich, Jewel, myself, you know. And they yeah. just kind of took me off the poster one because it, I don't know. I guess it was for their like kind of market sensibilities. They couldn't figure out how to market that to that you know young white kid out in Kansas or Minnesota or whomever they. It was like oh, some wow. weird, really weird, stupid, fucked up, racist bullshit, you know. And then uh, they decided they decided not to release the movie fully. And but it's a beautiful film. Ang Lee 
you know, kind of an outsider looking in at American history in, uh, in, a, in a really nuanced way. And it's the last uh, American film about the Civil War of the 20th century, you know. But, uh, you know, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Now, let me, can we just talk about um, the, uh, the Muddy Waters role for a second? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. The, were you a Muddy Waters fan? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who isn't? Who isn't? We all are. Yeah, even if I know. We, I even, know. Even if, we don't, even if we don't know it, you know? I mean, and what did you learn about him going into that that you didn't know already? Well, um, a hell of a lot. I mean, I you know I didn't realize at the time. I don't think that he was he was illiterate, couldn't read or write. His dude oh, yeah, could yeah. not read or write, and ends up essentially rewriting the you know the direction of modern American music. You know, and could not read or write. I mean, these guys, what I came to appreciate about those guys, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, those guys, though, though I saw them as almost as like, uh, it's just like, you know, as heroic, as artist, as hero. I mean, what they did coming from where they came from nothing and creating the soundtrack out of that to American freedom. This idea, at least, that we aspire toward, you know, so cut to the Berlin Wall and they're playing, you know, rock and roll. They're playing Muddy Waters music because that idea of freedom that they were able to articulate musically, right, was based on a history, personal history and a collective history in this country born out of slavery, I mean, those guys were bad ass, as bad yeah. as it gets. I mean, just <laughs> you know, come on, man, and and yeah, the, and change the whole world, you know, change the way we hear music, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, globally, bad asses. I mean, just incredible. It's so it's always so bizarre to me that the the, the kind of strange, sometimes tense, but but seemingly. A symbiotic relationship between Jews and uh, and African Americans and modern music. Yeah, you know, like the chess guys. Yeah, you know, because at some point, like I, I don't know if it, if you read about that, like you know, like Muddy used to paint the fucking walls at Chess Records. Yeah. Right. You know, before like before he made it big, you know, he was just sort of a guy who would sit in with the band and work around the office and shit. But it's just sort of this weird kind of a relationship that is sometimes exploitive, but seemingly, you know, mutually beneficial. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't always in all circumstances, the coolest, you know, the coolest alliance, you know, but it was, you know, no. kind of a, a necessary symbiotic one, you know, it was definitely that. Yeah. But then of course, right. then there are other instances in which, you know, you look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Blue Note records. And, Look, yeah, but you also look at the like the Freedom Riders down in the South, you know, Goodman, Turner, yeah. and Cheney, and you see, yeah, you know, that yep. was an alliance of yeah. a different type, you know. So they're yeah, complicated like everything, you know, that relationship. But yeah, with the chess guys, yeah, they took they yeah. took they took them guys, they took some of the guys for for a ride, you know, pretty much, you know, you know, no pretty doubt. much all of them. No doubt. And, but but likewise, did you know? You look at you know, look at Led Zeppelin, look at the Stones, all of this, yeah. all of it is derived from muddy waters you know and but you know what's uh, weird about the stones is that you know they they brought a lot of people to the stones were always really kind of like 
they would, you know, they would, uh, you know, name their sources, bring them on the road yeah. with them, celebrate yeah. them, make sure yep. people knew what was up. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. But they made a whole hell of a lot more money than those guys did, you know, to have the capacity to be able to to give them that gift. You know what I mean? And That's I think there were some loss. There were some there were some lawsuits. I don't know if it was with the Stones, but I think Muddy and I think and maybe Led Zeppelin. You know, like all these riffs that I grew up thinking. You know, squeeze my lemon. You know, the, you know Led Zeppelin I was like, wait a minute. God. Yeah, it was there was definitely they ripped off that whole riff. I think it's a Willie Dixon song. Is that right? But like you know, whole lot of love. Yeah. You know, that's that's Muddy Waters. Yeah, yeah. You know. The Rolling right, Stones. The right, name. Right. The, the name right. derives from a uh, tune called "Catfish Blues." That name. That's yeah. Muddy Waters. I mean, it's incredible. Like a Rolling just, Stone. Yeah. Yep. 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 I mean, it's just uh, just incredible, incredible, and and from absolutely nothing, digging it out of the Mississippi dirt, man. Yeah, yeah. it's fucking beautiful, man. It's a beautiful yep. story. So, you, you did you guys finish shooting Batman or what? No, we uh, we were in. Uh, I think our. Whew, I don't know. Oh, third month, you know, I guess we've been going for about two and a half months and uh, we, you know, hit the brakes, you know, uh, so we'll go back and we've got about like three, we got about another four months to go, you know, uh, once and we get And you're playing Commissioner Gordon? I am, yeah, 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 having a ball. We were we were having a ball. Yeah? Man. Yeah. When was the last time you watched Basquiat? Uh... Actually, it was within the last year, right? And you know why? Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I hadn't seen it uh, in a while. And I was actually out to dinner with uh, Wes Anderson and another filmmaker, friend of his. And and they were talking about this. Talking about that, and somehow uh, Julian Schnabel came up in the conversation. And I was like, yeah, Julian, you know, cause we, we had, you know, we had tricky relationship during the process of making that film and, you know, kind of since like, you know, gotten, you know, past that. And, uh, and, uh, one of them said, well, yeah, you made a beautiful film together though. And I was like, huh? Yeah. It's like, Oh really? You know, I was like, wow, it was, a, it, was it was, a, it was kind of, a, it was a, you know, it was a lovely thing to hear. And so I said, well, and I went back and said, "Let me watch that thing." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty good." Wait, wait, you yeah. get you you and Schnabel had problems. Yeah, well, you mean it wasn't? Yeah, that was a yeah, that was a complicated situation there on a number of levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. But it was like, because he was a painter. Well, you know, Julian is a better. You know, he's a you know he's a certain personality and uh, yeah. And, you know, in some ways that was obviously a personal, you know, film for him to make. But it was very personal for me, too, because I, you know, I felt uh, yeah. a certain kin- kinship with uh, with uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and his story. You know, yeah. and I felt there were aspects yeah. of it that I knew that maybe he did not appreciate, you know. And so, oh, interesting. Yeah. you know, and as his first film, I, you know, I was, you know, I was, you know, I, I just... the. Done. I'd gotten finished Angel in America about a year before that, I think, and you know, I'm feeling my oats and stuff too. And anyway, um, at the same time, he's incredibly generous, you know, in terms of allowing me space to kind of research and paint, you know, and all, you know, just prepare for that thing. And you know, at the end of the day, yeah, it was complicated, um, but you know, uh, I think their relationship, his relationship with Jean Michel, was complicated too. So it kind of made sense. In a, in a, yeah, in a I gotta watch. I'm gonna try to watch that again. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I'll let you get to your dogs and get to your life. That was great <laughs> talking to you. I hope you Thank enjoyed you, it. 
Well, I did, man. I, you know, I appreciate your uh, your interest and appreciate uh, the time amidst uh, all the stuff that's going on around us. You know, so uh, thanks. Yeah, bro. man. Yeah. yeah, I think. When do I meet you? I met you at a Netflix party or somewhere, and I came up. Ah, here. Was that's it, I right. Think, oh, wait, maybe it was. It, it was. I think it might have been at the Emmys. I can't remember yeah. where. But I went out of my way. And yes, like, you hey, did. Man. I'm glad yeah, you did because yeah, yeah. there was a lot of weird well, but, stuff there, and you were not. You 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 were not among that weirdness. I appreciated meeting you. There. Yeah, I I always feel like a, a tourist at all those things. Like I, oh, I don't dude. even know why I'm there, but I was happy to meet you. Get me back to Brooklyn, baby. <laughs> Get me back to Brooklyn. You know. Yeah. Great talking to you, man. Thanks, man. All right, keep well. Take care. Okay. Okay, that was Jeffrey Wright and I chatting, as I said, before the protests. But uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's a very engaged, active, smart man. He's also uh, in the movie All Day and a Night, which is now streaming on Netflix. And also, as I said earlier, he's uh, behind the relief organization Brooklyn for Life, which was established to provide food for frontline workers during the pandemic. You can check that out at brooklynforlife.org. And again, thank you, everyone, for reaching out and keeping me afloat during this time. And I hope you guys are taking care of yourselves and doing the big work and fighting the good fight in however you uh, find you are capable of doing it. Um, now I'm going to play a little guitar and, uh, and I'll talk to you in a couple of days. I miss you, Lynn. Thank you.